Hello friends, it's Jim Nance and it's my great pleasure to welcome you to Beyond the Clubhouse, a podcast hosted by my friend Garrett Johnston. He is a testament to one of the great things about this sport, the friendships that come from playing or even just talking about the game. And you're going to meet some of the characters that Garrett has gotten to know from this past decade plus that he's been covering the sport. You're going to hear from players, caddies, members of the media. You're going to get the storytelling, the golf news, the players' swing tips, and a whole lot of laughs. It's coming your way with this edition of Beyond the Clubhouse. Here's Garrett. All right, Jim Nance, thank you for the introduction here. Last episode of the year, 2020, where have you gone? The 36th episode, 36 holes, right? It's golf terms. Hal Sutton is my guest, and this is one of my absolute favorite interviews I've ever done in golf. We're talking about thousands of interviews over 10, 11 years covering this game. Hal Sutton's energy, his creativity, his love for the game, it all comes out. He's teaching all the time at the Hal Sutton Golf Academy. This guy is just doing so much work, so many positive things for the game, and you're going to hear his stories about the 99 Ryder Cup, about winning against Tiger Woods at the 2000 PGA, excuse me, the 2000 Players Championship. It was the 1983 PGA. Yes, he did win that, and he beat, oh, a certain Jack Nicholas. Who else can boast these kinds of wins in their career? What a guy he is, Hal Sutton. So much energy. You're going to love what he brings to the table here in this episode. Before we get to that, Encore Golf, these guys make unbelievable golf balls. The Avant is one of them, the Elixir. I've been playing their Vero X1, it's tour quality golf ball. And man, I, when you play it into the wind, I've been playing a lot recently in the wind, this thing is, is low spin, so t I tend to get in trouble. I tend to hit it out of bounds a lot of times in the wind. And this thing really stays in front of you, and I love that part of it. The Vero X1, Encore Golf, check them out on Instagram at Encore Golf, as well on Twitter, at Encore Golf. They have a huge presence. Gary Player is a part of the team as well. EncoreGolf.com, check them out. Listen, Hal Sutton, this is one of the best interviews. So enjoyable. He said there were some questions he had never heard before in here. So get ready, buckle up. This guy is one of a kind. He really is one of the best voices in golf here on Beyond the Clubhouse. I am very pleased to be joined by my next guest. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Hal Sutton, 14-time PGA Tour winner. Of course, he is teaching a, a lot these days. He talks about always learning in his Twitter bio, and that's with an exclamation point that we're always learning. Hal, what's going on today? How are you? Oh, I'm good, Garrett. Uh, just doing the same thing I do every day, which is show up and uh, get ready to learn. Yes. Well, you talk about always learning in your Twitter bio. W what can we take away from that as weekend golfers, as amateur golfers? Uh, you never finish the journey. You know, I, I was thinking about something this morning. I'm uh, 24 years old. Somebody tweeted they were 24, you know, and I'm thinking, I thought I knew everything at 24. And, you know, certainly when it came to golf, I thought I was pretty accomplished at 24. But the truth is, 24 is a kid and still elementary in the learning process. And uh, the sooner a 24-year-old realizes that, the better opportunity has to be great. Yes, yes. Learning, of course. Um, well, you had talked about with Mark Immelman, to that point about being in your, your early 20s, you would talk with him about if you knew what you know now, I mean, at age 22, 24, 
how good you could be if you were playing for the passion of the game and playing for you and not necessarily the money and the outside influences, right? Exactly. You know, I think we get caught up in the big picture, which is the money and everybody else's expectations. And the small picture is the procedure of what's going on right in your life, right there at the time. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, the world caught me up in it. And, uh, you know, I wished I didn't had more wisdom to deal with it. Mm. Well, we're obviously, we're, we're only at where we're at as we go through our life, but you talk so much, Hal, about mentorship. And you mentioned um, other players, Raymond Floyd, teaching you some things about hitting the ball whole high and keys like that. But how has mentorship played a role in your life? Well, I've had several mentors. You know, I, I mean, I'm one of the few that had the luxury. I worked with Byron Nelson for three years. I became friendly with Jackie Burke when the University of Houston tried to recruit me, and he and I have been friends my whole, you know, my whole golfing life. And uh, I spent some time around Ben Hogan, as a matter of fact, because my dad was a member at Shady Oaks, and that's where Ben Hogan hung out in his later years in life was at Shady Oaks. So saw him many times out there and talked to him. But, you know, people were always giving me little – uh, crumbs of wisdom, if you will. And, uh, you know, I'd follow along and pick up those crumbs of wisdom. And, you know, one of the things that if I could say this to many junior golfers out there, try to learn something from people that have been doing this for 50 years, you know, don't just discard what they think because there's a lot more to golf than just a golf swing. And, you know, we have advanced in a lot of ways when it comes to a golf swing because of technology. But the game of golf is still largely played the same way. And so those people that played for a long period of time uh, and competed at a high level, they know quite a bit. Pick their brain. Yes, yes. Uh, well, so much you've talked about Jack Nicholas. You know, I'm going to go straight to that. Um, Jack Nicholas and the time you spent with him in 87 at the Ryder Cup, you tweeted about that recently. What moment comes to mind from that, the ultimate event in our sport, and there you were at Muirfield Village, Jack's backyard with him? How about that? That's pretty, pretty strong, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I'll never forget him saying yeah, the reason for that. I was the only single guy on the team at the time. And so, you know, they were all hanging out with wives and stuff, you know. And so Jack and Barbara said, they called me the week before and said, look, would you be okay with just staying with us at our house? And I said, oh, are you kidding me? That'd be a dream come true. And uh, so, yes, we, I stayed at the same house with them and, you know, had lots of conversation with Jack about his whole career, basically. Uh, we shot pool every night in the basement and, uh, you know, it's it, memories that I'll never forget. You know, one of the things that I said to Jack was, I said, do you think you could do at the time, think about this 1987, do you think you could have amassed the career that you had in that world that day? And he said, how it would have been a lot harder because there were a, a lot more really good players at 1987. He said, you know, when I was playing, there were four or five guys that thought they could beat me before we played. And he said, you know, Arnold Palmer, Lee Trevino, uh, Raymond, 
you know, a few guys like Gary Player. But, you know, and then maybe another one that was playing really good at the time. But he said the rest of them, you know, we got down to the last hole. I knew I was going to beat them. They knew I was going to beat them, you know. And if you look – and he, one of the things that he said, if you look back at my career, he said, I didn't birdie a lot of the last holes to win. I just didn't bogey the last hole. And he said, you know, I didn't have to do things like that to win. A lot of people beat themselves when it came to playing me. Playing it. He's talking about himself, you know. Great stuff there from Jack Nicholas. Awesome advice from him. I would imagine you were a kid growing up in Shreveport, Louisiana, Hal. And you had said before you beat Jack in the 83 PGA Championship that you had gone through that moment in your mind on the 18th hole so many times, final round, at your, your home courses. Where were you at in those hundreds of times as a kid when you beat Jack Nicholas in your mind? Well, I played at two places in Treeport, Northwood Country Club and Treeport Country Club. And, you know, I spent lots of time playing by myself. I really enjoyed playing by myself because I was able to try a lot of different shots. And so when I'd play a hole, I'd hit two and three balls on every hole from different places and learning different shots. And, you know, I'd get to the last hole and I'd say, okay, I got to birdie this hole to beat Jack Nicholas, or I got to par this hole to beat Jack Nicholas. He was my idol. So he was, that's who I've said I wanted to beat every time. And so, you know, I'm sitting here right now looking at, uh, Joni Carter's uh, computer printout of when I beat Jack Nicklaus on the second, on the 18th hole at Riviera, it was my second shot. And, you know, that moment in time, I had practiced for so many years. And, you know, I got asked a lot of times, was I nervous about it? And the truth of it was, I really wasn't that nervous. I had a perfect five iron shot into the green. I'd done this in my head so many times. And, you know, naturally when you're by yourself, you beat him every time. <laughs> <laughs> you have to. So you have to. So, you know, it didn't play out any differently in real life. Yes. And what have the exchanges been like with Jack because you won there at that major championship, the 83 PGA? You know, I would say that Jack and I were pretty good friends. We weren't great friends, you know, but uh, I certainly respected him all – you know, everything that he's ever done in life and what a gentleman and, and what a great woman Barbara is too. She's stood by his side and, and, you know, just lifted him. You know, that's what special people around greatness do. They lift the greatness and that's what she did. Definitely. She, she's been a huge person. Of course, even at the Honda Classic being such a huge part of that tournament, even up to, to this day. Um, I want to ask you, we, we talk about Shreveport, Louisiana, what other memories of junior golf really come to mind? Sentimental memories for you growing up there? Uh, that's an interesting question. I've not been asked that question, Garrett. Uh, you know, just playing high school golf around there, uh, um, there weren't a lot of junior golf tournaments that we could play in. I had to go everywhere else to play in junior golf tournaments. Uh, but I remember a lot of high school golf tournaments there. Um, good friends from there, from high school. Nobody really made it in my era around there. A uh, couple of guys went on to be club professionals, but mostly went into other lines of work. That's my interesting. Oh, go ahead, sir. Well, just saying most of my junior playing friends went into other lines of work. They just uh, played golf in high school, really. 
Well, to that point, though, Hal, how do you keep your eyes on the prize? I know for me, coming from Sacramento, California, a small town, there are not many golf journalists, any, that come from there. And it was very hard for me to keep my eyes on the prize. How do you do it, Hal? Uh, that's an interesting question there, too. You know, I just loved the game, wanted to progress in the game, surrounded myself. My dad helped me surround myself with people that I aspired to be like, and I never took my eye off of the ball, so to speak. You know, I wanted to make it in golf. That's what I had chosen to do. My dad told me when I was 15, I'll support this as long as you treat it like a job. But the minute you quit treating it like a job, then I'm not going to support it. And I thought he meant business when he told me that. <laughs> uh, it's interesting, though. Uh, you can follow Hal, of course, on Twitter, at Hal Sutton Golf. You have talked about the artistry of the game and how it needs to be valued more in this, in this era that we're in of distance. How can we do that more, Hal? It's, it's a little bit difficult to do in the world today with the technology that's available. Uh, you know, we don't try shots anymore as much as we – I mentioned earlier that – I'd play by myself and I'd hit three or four different shots and try to, you know, figure out how I could make it work, how I could make it slice, how I could make it hook, how I could make it go lower, how I could bump and run shots. Now, you know, in America, we play the game in the air. And, uh, you know, we don't play it on the ground nearly as much as we used to. And the other thing is, is we're all trying to hit a single kind of shot because technology, we choose whether we want to hit a draw, whether we want to hit a fade, and we both, and we all know what causes that. You know, whether you're, you know, two degrees positive uh, with your path or you're negative with your path will produce a certain result. So every kid that comes in here, they're trying to do something, you know. And in the old days, I tried to do all things. And there was not one way that was just necessarily the right way. There was multiple ways to do it. And, you know, I would encourage kids to try multiple ways of doing things. Interesting. And you kind of just touched on this here, but there's a Twitter question from one, one bearded golfer who says, what are the biggest differences you see, Hal, between when you were coming up in golf and the kids and juniors you teach today at the Hal Sutton Golf Academy? The biggest differences that I see is uh, speed. They all want speed. Uh, you know, I was trying to hit it accurately. I don't know if you can see over my shoulder, but there's there is a bunch of wooden clubs right there. Can you see those? Persimmon, those are, I believe. You yeah. know, artifacts. They're ancient. Persimmon, Antique. yes. And you know, get one of those out and try to hit it. You know, and you know, their head is so small. The sweet spot on it is so small. So speed wasn't something that I was necessarily trying to achieve. I was trying to hit it in the same spot with the same face every time that I could hit it so that I could hit it straight. And back in those days, uh, the best drivers won the most money. And it moved into when we got into metal woods, uh, everybody started driving the ball much better. And so now it's turned into who's making the most putts. And you go back and look in the early 80s and late 70s, and it was the guys that drove the ball the best that made the most money. Mm, the drivers, definitely. Um, I want to ask you, I'm going to go uh, back to your passion with teaching as, as we get to this point. You, you say on Twitter, you want to help. I, I've got so many direct quotes here. Let me get this right. You said you want to help everybody else 
in a way that it might advance their careers. At this point, Hal Sutton's best is behind him. So you want to advance their careers. So how do you do that at the Hal Sutton Golf Academy? Well, basically what I do, even on Twitter, whenever I do something like that, I'm thinking of me being a young man that would come in here to Hal Sutton Golf. And what could I tell them that would help them? And, and see, I have the luxury on Twitter. They're not asking me any questions. I don't know if they are listening or not. You know, if they come in here, you know, I can tell if they're not listening to me. So I'm assuming on Twitter when I post something that they're actually listening to me. That's a really lost art of listening. Everybody's talking all the time. And the way you learn is that you listen, you don't talk. And I was one of those kids a long time ago that I wanted to do the talking. And I didn't know enough to do the talking. I should have been listening. And so that's how I use Twitter. So I've, I'm thinking of myself being a, a 18 year old or 16 year old and what could help them the most that I know. So those are the things that I'm looking for that I can tweet about and hopefully a few people listen to it and take it to the next level of understanding. Yes. Well, you talk about the art of listening. Are, are there certain mentors that have kind of modeled that for you or, or is it something you kind of learned on your, on your own, your own life? Well, yeah, Jackie Burke used to tell me all the time, he said, how are you going to be traveling all your life? And he said, on every corner is a success and a failure. He said, if you look closely, you can see why both happened. Think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you can do if you pay attention. I mean, that's not just a business. That's a life. There are lives on each corner and some have succeeded and some have failed. And you can tell why. Mm, that almost sounds like a proverb uh, from the good book. Uh, Jackie Burke, I love that you mentioned him. Champions Golf Club, you guys just hosted the U.S. Women's Open. How rewarding was that for you? And just to see, see the youth of those ladies out there, what was that like? It was great. You know, it, it completed the circle of USGA events for champions. And I was happy about that. And my best friend down here was the chairman of the golf tournament. He did a fantastic job, Tom Godball. And uh, I was you know, Jackie is, will be 98 in January. And for him to be able to see the completion of all the USGA events at Champions, there's only two places that can boast about that, Pinehurst and Champions. And um, really cool. I think the tournament looked, you know, uh, in the COVID era that we're living in right now, uh, I think they did the best job they could do. Uh, it was a great tournament. It was a good finish. And, uh, you know, I'm excited. It was, it was fun for all down here. Yes. Well, you talked about the chairman being your friend, of course, Jackie Burke. So many people have become such good friends of yours over the years, Hal. And in 43 years of golf, I always ask this, friendships of golf is what Beyond the Clubhouse podcast is about. Right. What are some of the friendships, the lasting friendships of the shared passion of this game? Well, let me start with this one. In 1974, I played in the junior world for the first time. So I went out to San Diego to play. And the first person I met was a guy, another kid from uh, Zimbabwe. You might have heard of him, Nick Price. Nick and I became friends that week. And we've been friends ever since. 
And even though we don't see each other all the time, we used to play lots of practice rounds together. But, you know, before every holiday, we text each other or call each other and, and uh, wish each other, like I just texted him and wished him a Merry Christmas. And he texted me back, said, same to you. Let's go bird hunting soon. And, you know, who would have ever thought in 1974 that he and I would have been friends uh, for this many years from two different parts of the world. So lots of friends from golf. You know, the great part about golf is, is everybody uh, are really friendly with each other. You know, we competed against each other hard, but we're also friends with each other. Yes. Well, I think of another friend, a guy that you spent some time with in Ryder Cups. I think of Ben Crenshaw and just the leadership he brought. 99, everyone talks about that. What a moment. What a moment of, of just friendship and, and, and just collective uh, goal that you guys sought there at that, at that Ryder Cup, ultimately on that Sunday. When you think of Crenshaw, um, you know, what comes to mind with Ben? Gentle. I mean, he gets his name. Uh, you know, he's not a, a – He's easy to be around, you know, he's, uh, he's thinking of others. He's not just thinking of himself and, uh, you know, I've just been, and I've been friends forever. We played a lot of critical rounds of golf with each other. And, um, you know, I was playing with Ben the last day at Riviera that day. Um, so we've had some, some fun times on the golf course and, uh, we're still great friends. Love Ben. Does being paired with a comfortable pairing have a big effect when you're going for your first major, when you're going for a huge event? Absolutely. It makes a big difference. And, uh, you know, Ben was easy to play with. Uh, when, I mean, he never puts pressure on anybody else in the group. Even when he's playing his best, he's, you know, in his own little world and uh, easy going, talking, never, you know, never silent. Well, we talk about friendships. I know that fellow Louisiana and um, Terry Bradshaw, you've played some golf with him over the years. What's it like playing with Terry? <laughs> Terry, is, he's, Terry is Terry. You know, he's a colorful person. Uh, he's, he's super funny, you know. And, you know, I love Terry because early on in his career, you know, they said he wasn't very smart. And I was, he's smart like a fox. What are you talking about? Uh, he's He's been he's been a great asset for Louisiana. He's carried the torch of uh, a North Louisiana guy, Louisiana Tech. Uh, well, you know he's every Sunday he's on TV still, seventy years old. What kind of golfer is he? Can you tell us about that? Uh, he's all right. He's not. I mean, he used to be pretty good. I don't know what he is like now. I hadn't played with him in several years, but uh, he's always laughing and having a good time, making a joke. Uh, He's not going to be silent on a golf course. You can trust. You can trust in that. <laughs> One of my favorite things about golf, I covered the Crosby Clam Bake. You know, the AT and T Pebble yeah. Beach tournament. Being from Northern California, I love seeing Larry Fitzgerald, Aaron Rodgers get so excited about playing golf. Kenny G on the range till late in the evening. What what athlete comes to mind for you in terms of having as much passion as you've ever seen? Uh, well. Michael Jordan loves the game. He, he, he's eat up with the game. Uh, played with a lot of athletes through the years that were uh, – one thing that I've noticed about other athletes is they love golf and they want to be good at golf, 
but they struggle at being good at golf. And they had so much control over their own sport. And then to come into golf, it's like mysterious that they can't conquer golf like they did. You know, the golf ball's not moving. It's just sitting there looking at you. It's not going to go anywhere until you make it go somewhere. And, uh, you know, they've all, most of them played a reactionary sport. And, um, you know, you react to what it's doing. And golf, you have to have a lot of discipline and self-control and uh, control what you do. Well, I think of other people that are so important to this game for you over the years. You're on the winning team in 99 with, with Payne Stewart. And that was the last moment you had seen and spent time with Payne was in that celebration there at Brookline. And, you know, how, what can, what do you remember from, from that? Either, either that or also just your friendship with Payne. Well, Payne and I, a lot of people don't know this, but the locker room lockers were assigned in alphabetical order. And of course, Stewart and Sutton, we were pretty much side by side for 20 years. And so, you know, we saw each other's best and we saw each other's worst. And uh, Payne and I were friendly. I wouldn't call us best friends, but we were, you know, good friends. And 99 brought us closer together. Um, The last time I ever spent with Payne was that evening. And we were talking about the next Ryder Cup, and he was probably close to in line to be the next captain. If he the next captain was uh, uh, Curtis Strange, but he probably would have followed Curtis when I was actually captain in two thousand and four. So uh, you know, Payne was talking about, "Hey, I want you to be my assistant captain if I'm uh, ever become the captain," and I didn't presume that I was ever going to be a captain. So I didn't talk about who would be my captain, assistant captains if we did, but Payne kind of figured he was going to be, which rightfully so. And uh, that was an evening that I'll never forget because he and I sat around quietly, just the two of us talking about a future Ryder Cup. So how late did this, uh, this celebration, which was unbelievable at Brookline, go for you guys? Did it ever quit? I don't. <laughs> it's still going. I, I, it went very late, probably into the next morning. <laughs> wow. And, and how? It, I mean, obviously, I think maybe we might have gone. To, we might have gone to sleep sometime four or five o'clock in the morning, but it was late. What else do you remember from that? Because you had Tiger, who was so into it at that point. You had the big jump on 16 when, when Justin Leonard made that massive putt against Jose Maria. So many players. It was huge for all of them. It was, it was, you know, I think a lot of people got confused, thought it was over with when Justin made the putt. And it was unfortunate that everybody ran out on the green. Um, and I'm sure if everybody could change that, they would. But uh, the biggest thing that I remember is the disappointment of being down as bad as we were. You know, it, one of the things that you may or may not remember was that was kind of the year that a lot of the younger players started throwing around that uh, we needed to be paid And, uh, you know, that was not something that the older players, such as myself, felt like needed to be done. And uh, I think the PGA of America realized that, you know, they weren't going to be able to keep going on like this and keep the younger guys happy. And so that was a real transition year. Um, And, you know, we were 
supposedly the heavy favorite going into that week. And we found ourselves four down and uh, buried in a bunch of controversy because of a lot of the younger guys that wanted to be paid. And so to come from behind like that, to pull it back together and uh, come from behind was pretty rewarding, to be honest with you. Huge, huge comeback. Yeah. And, and you know what? I have to ask you a Twitter question from Spider Rico. He says, what was it like for you, Hal, Sunday on the ground at Brookline? What did you know about the other matches? You were number two going out. Well, it was the most electric day I had ever spent on a golf course. You know, Ben stacked the first six guys um, who were playing the best. That's the first six guys out. And, you know, we had to win the first six matches to have a chance. And uh, we were all way up, you know, early on in the matches. We all won early, and we were way up. And, boy, that got the crowd into it. There's nothing but red numbers up there. And uh, everybody got excited. The crowd was electric, you know. And every time there was another change where somebody went further up, you know, the crowd got excited about it. Yes. And of course, 2012, you had that huge comeback by Europe. This is something I always believe. I want to get your opinion, Hal. I'm wearing the 2012 Ryder Cup moment because I, I still think it was a great event. I feel like American fans are, are too wounded by the fact that their team lost in that Ryder Cup. How, how should we look at the 2012 Ryder Cup? Well, I was there, so I saw that too unfold. Um, the only thing that I can say to American fans, to any fan out there, there has never been pressure that I have ever felt like I felt in a Ryder Cup. And some guys stand up under the pressure and some guys don't stand up under the pressure. It's different, you know, because you're playing for other people. You're playing for your country when you're out there on your own in a U.S. Open, a Masters, or anything else, if you fail, it just costs you. But in the Ryder Cup, it costs other people. And that's a, an added pressure that most guys uh, don't feel very often. And I was fortunate. I played on two Ryder Cup teams, a couple of President's Cup teams, and four Ryder Cup teams. And, and every time I did, I you know, I took it to heart. I was not representing Hal Sutton anymore. I was representing the United States of America. And, uh, you know, uh, it's hard to move from representing yourself to representing a bigger cause. And there's a lot of pressure that goes with that. Well, speaking of that pressure, Hal, and you talk about the bigger cause, what stands out from being a captain in 2004 and knowing, you know, all expectations, but, you know, it, it was you that, that had to be the captain? Yeah, well, <laughs> that's a difficult task, to be honest with you. A lot of moving parts to it. Um, you're dealing with a lot of um, people that have been very successful and don't think anybody can tell them how to do anything. I, I think it's a glorified babysitter in a lot of ways, being a, a captain of, uh, of any, you know, everybody's efficient at what they do, they think. And, you know, uh, the hardest thing I ever did was try to captain and not play. Mm. Uh, you know, you never hit a shot. You, 
uh, try to do your best to pair personalities together. And uh, anyway, long story short, it was tough being a captain. I'm not sure anybody's ever enjoyed being a captain other than a winning captain. Because it's kind of like my dad said whenever I was asked to be captain, I, I told him, they asked me, and I said, I'll have to think about this. So I'll never forget, I called my dad that night, and I said, you know, they they asked me, they called me into a meeting today, and they asked me to be the Ryder Cup captain. My dad said, what would you say? I said, I told him I had to think about it. He said, really? I said, yeah. He said, I'm glad you told him you needed to think about it. He said, I don't think you ought to do it. Wow. I said, you're kidding me. He, I said, dad, it's what I worked my whole life for is to be honored like this. Uh, he said, well, then why did you tell him you didn't know if you were that certain of it? And I said, well, I'm 46 years old. I'm still exempt. And uh, I think there's a lot required to do it. And I just don't know if I'm in the right spot in my career to do it. And my dad said, you're not, you need to tell them no. And I said, I don't know if anybody's ever told them no or not. And he said, so let me ask you this, Hal. He said, if you win, who gets the credit for it? The players. players. He said, if you lose, who gets the credit for that? The captain. He said, so where's your upside in this? <laughs> That's wow. what my dad said to me. And you know, that was before I had ever been captain. And the truth of the matter is, there's a lot of truth to that, you know. And uh, But it's something there's only been 25 or 6 captains ever. I don't know what exactly what the number is, but uh, it's an honor to be asked to do it. And I did it. And there were parts of it that I really enjoyed, and there were parts of it that I didn't enjoy. But uh, anyway, it's a little bit about being captain. Absolutely. And your dad to have so much wisdom and, and, and to tell you out of, out of love where he was, you know, coming from. That's, that's, that's awesome. Um, man, I, it, when I think about that Ryder Cup, everyone obviously remembers Tiger Phil. They remember, um, American, the American team not doing so well. I mean, it was a great European team, Bernard Langer, but what was Tiger and Phil's reaction when you suggested they, uh, be paired together? Uh, actually both of them wanted to do it. Uh, I think for different reasons, I, I'm not sure, you know, I, I, I can't get into, um, what Tiger's reasoning for it was or what Phil's reasoning for it was, but, you know, my reasoning was <clears throat> they weren't real friendly at the time and uh, they were real competitive with each other. And I thought, man, if these guys could come together and become friends, golf is the winner and so you know i talked to him and i told him i said look a common cause like this can cause a new friendship and let's hope that that happens here and uh you know there was a lot of other factors involved in those decisions and uh but anyway uh, it didn't pan out like i had hoped it would have um Phil did not play very well that week at all. And I mean, that's no secret. Anybody that watched the tournament could see that. And, um, you know, I kept it quiet all these years about a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I think we need to leave it at that.
Sure, sure. Um, and, and I guess in closing the book on Ryder Cup discussion, um, is how do you look back on it now? I mean, I know you were captain and, and it, it, you dealt with it. It was, it was a tough thing to deal with, all everybody's expectations after the fact. And like you said, your dad's saying you're going to get blamed for it if you lose. So how, how have you dealt with it? What have you learned now going forward? Well, you know, to be honest with you, I quit golf after that Ryder Cup. I left the game for five years. And, uh, I, I mean, I literally quit. I played like 20 rounds of golf in five years. And I was so disgruntled in what I loved so much. And I just thought this can't be the ending like this. And I wanted to do something else. I was not even, I didn't even want to be around golf. And uh, so I can't say that that closing experience for Al Sutton was something of joy and something that I look back on fondly. Uh, I will tell you that all of my experience of playing in the Ryder Cup was memories that I'll never give up. I enjoyed playing for the United States of America. And, uh, you know, nothing got your juices flowing quite like seeing the flag raised, the jets fly over, and you know something big is about to happen. Yes. What what a huge event it is. As you said, one of the biggest – it is the biggest stage in, in our game. Um, i got to ask you about big stages individually in our game. What's the most satisfac- satisfying victory that you've had individually? Well, it had to be TPC against Tiger, uh, <laughs> mainly because – at that time, people were wondering if Tiger could be beat. And, you know, he had pretty much turned everybody back. And the week before at Bay Hill, uh, you know, he had turned – Davis had a three-shot lead on him and Davis lost. And Colin Montgomery, two weeks prior to that, said everybody else is playing for second. Tiger's going to win them all. And, you know, at that time, I was really playing good, and I knew that TPC was point A, point to point B to point C. And I could do that about as good as anybody could. And I knew that distance wasn't going to be the most, uh, wasn't going to make the difference in that game that week. So, you know, I just knew, hey, if we come down to the wire, I can beat him here. And uh, so that was the most satisfying. And it was such a finish. The be the right club today moment. I know you and you you gave so much credit to Freddie in our conversation back in March. This is the 20th right. anniversary. This year's the 20th anniversary. What an amazing moment. How many thousands or hundreds of thousands of times have fellow playing partners told you be the right club today? Well, I hear it all the time, even today. You know, people still they'll come in here and they'll talk about be the right club today. And actually the six iron that I hit is right over here to my right. And, you know, I'll show them the club and I said, well, there's the club that I hit right there. And, you know, it was, I'd never said be the right club today. It was just one of those times when the ball was in the air, I knew I had the perfect club. Don't surprise me. That's really what I was saying. Please don't surprise me. This is about over with this shot is in the air and it's right. (laughs) we got about five more minutes. I'm going to wrap up here. But I, I love what you said there about your six iron. You tweeted about to the general audience, you said, you need to believe that your six iron, it was in your case, seven iron is the shot you can pull off when it matters under competition. And how important is that aspect? 
Well, <clears throat> what I was saying is so many people make the situation bigger. But the truth of the matter is, whether it's a six iron, seven iron, whatever it is, it's the same six or seven iron as when you play it at your home golf course. But the situation is different. So if you look at it like, okay, this is just the same shot that I've hit the rest of my life, I can do this. If you really make your world real small. But the problem is most people are thinking about the big picture what's really going on and you know i was pretty successful in most of those situations where it was a big situation and i always tried to tell myself to make my world as small as i could make it at that time so that i could focus on what i needed to do at the time not on what the world wanted me to do at the time and a situation if you keep it small. Yes. Well, this is kind of the advice I love to talk about uh, speaking to the weekend golfers. What is the pre-round routine during a tournament? What was it like for you in your practice session, warming up? What can we learn from that? Uh, I didn't, you know, I walked out of the uh, locker room about one hour before I uh, was going to tee off. Uh, I walked to the putting green. I'd hit you know, five minutes worth of putts. And then I'd go to the driving range, mostly do some short game work wherever the short game facility was. Most of the time it's around the driving range. I start trying to hit balls about with 35 minutes to play, uh, 35 minutes before my tee time. And I hit balls for about 20 minutes. And then I'd go putt for another five or six minutes and then walk to the tee. You know, I never tried to hit lots of balls before I played because here's two things that can happen. All you really want to do is warm up. If you hit some bad shots in that time, your brain begins to wonder, is everything okay? All you're really trying to do is warm up before you go out to play a competitive round. Uh, and if I played really, really good, I never went to the tee after I finished. And here's the reason why. I didn't want to war hit some bad shots and make myself question what I was doing. I always tried to leave with a positive note. And if I played poorly, I'd go to the range and try to leave with a positive note by working on something. But, you know, if you hit enough shots, you're going to hit a bad one sooner or later. Boy, that can do – that can play uh, tricks on your brain. Yes. Well, you talk about the brain. Mentally getting us ready. When we weekend golfers get to the course, we got 20 minutes. How do we get ourselves mentally in the right frame of mind on the range in that time warming up? That's a pretty difficult task if you've only got 20 minutes. You, I mean, you're not going to be prepared, really. I mean, you know, I never went to the golf course with just 20 minutes to spare. Uh, so trying to tell somebody how to do that. I took my game more seriously. <laughs> sure, but we're all in working nine to five, Sal. We, we, it's all well, the time we got with kids. Hey, so then you need to change your expectations, Garrett. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you, maybe you should be happier with your performance than you are. Okay, so that should be a, our change in our mindset then, huh? I definitely think <laughs> one of the most important things that I could say on here is – having correct expectations leads to happiness. If you have incorrect expectations, it's going to lead to unhappiness. Hmm. Well, how about this short game as we're getting ready? We, we only putt so often, we only chip so often, but what would you do in our 
10 minute chunk that we give to short game to really get warmed up? Well, the best thing you can do is figure out the speed of the greens. Most people go to the greens and they want to hit short putts. You know, you better go to the green and hit some long putts because that's where you figure out the speed of the greens. But here's what most people want. They want good results. So where do you get good results? You go to hit a short putt. It's easier to make a three-footer than it is a 15-footer. But a three-footer doesn't really give you correct information about how fast the greens are. Where a 15 to 20-foot putt will give you more realistic uh, speed readings. Gotcha. And on the range, are there any drills that would be good? I know there's so many different ones we could try, but what would be a good one just for overall for us? Uh, you know, a drill, I try to keep the club in front of me all the time, in front of my turn, whatever that is. I don't try to let the club ever get behind me. So anything you can do that keeps the club in front of your turn. And, um, you know, I believe in centrifugal force. So if the club gets behind you, you've lost centrifugal force and you got to slow your body down to recapture centrifugal force. Nothing ever good comes from that. It's because you're relying totally on timing of every, of too many parts. So, uh, the biggest thing that I could tell every weekend golfer out there that make them a much better player is get realistic about how far you hit every club. There's not a single person that comes in here that actually knows how far they hit a, a shot. Track man doesn't lie about how far you hit it. And everybody comes in here and they hit a shot and they tell me how far they go. And I said, I don't ever put the carry yardage up there. I never put it up there. It's always on the left-hand side. They can't find it on the screen. And I'll say, so how far do you hit this? And they'll tell me how far they hit it. And I said, so, you know, let's just pull a number out of the sky here. I hit it 155 yards. I said, really? I said, so how come that thing says you just hit it 141 yards? And, well, I don't know. I said, did you hit it solid? Well, I thought I did. You know, so here's the truth. Most of them know how far they hit a total yardage. And I never, ever knew total yardage. I only knew carry yardage. And so I think here's good advice. Everybody hit one more club than you think you need because every kid that comes in here is hitting the club that if they nuke it, it gets to the hole. But how many times do you hit it that solid? So the truth is these kids leave it short most of the time. They never hit it long. So that will be the right club today. That will be the right club today. One more club. <laughs> I love it. Speaking of be the right, as we wrap up here, be the right podcast today is coming out in January, 2021. What can you tell us about that? How? Uh, we've been working on it. Um, you know, one of the reasons why I didn't really ad lib on the Ryder cup here is because I, I did, I've done a whole podcast on the 2004 Ryder cup. And, you know, there was a lot of things that needed to be said that I say in this, and uh, I've carried this for 16 years of my life, you know, and um, I was hurt enough by all of it that I quit the game for a long time. And, you know, I, I needed to put things to rest in my own heart. And uh, so we've been working on the podcast. We're going to do 10 of them to begin with where it's just us. We're not going to have any guests on it. And then we'll start having some guests. We've got a lot of things that we're talking about, Chase and I, 
Uh, it's fun. Chase is really a good guy, and he's he's smart and he's funny, and a lot of good things are going to come from this podcast. Well, Hal, it's been great having you as a guest here on Beyond the Clubhouse. Hey, thanks for joining. I, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Garrett, for having me on. All right. Huge, huge thanks to Hal Sutton. This guy, I love his energy. I love the one-of-a-kind aspect that he is. He's such a unique voice in the game. He's such an important voice, I believe. And look what he's done in his career. Beating Tiger Woods, beating Jack Nicholas, his boyhood idol in the 1983 PGA Championship at Riviera. He's won at Riviera. He's won twice at Sawgrass. This guy has a, an unbelievable career and 14 PGA Tour wins. But more than anything, he's a good guy from Shreveport, Louisiana. What a positive attitude he brings to the game. You have to follow him on Twitter. Such a wonderful voice, a refreshing voice, in my opinion, in such a cynical uh, golf Twitter that we have. So it's it's great stuff. Hope you enjoyed it. Of course, on Twitter, I'm there as well, at Johnston Garrett, uh, at Beyond Clubhouse for the podcast. Instagram, you're going to see all kinds of videos from the greatest stories that Hal Sutton says and tells in this interview. So on Instagram, follow me there, at Garrett Johnston Golf, as well as the podcast, at Beyond the Clubhouse podcast. This guy deserves to get so much credit, and you're going to see that in the upcoming videos here these next few days. Happy New Year's, everybody. It's been a, a crazy 2020 for all of us, but hang in there. I think it's all about having hope and staying positive as we look ahead here on Beyond the Clubhouse. Hope you enjoyed so far. we got so much going on ahead of us, and uh, we'll talk to you soon.